0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, January 2nd. I'm Marco Werman. Iran continued rattling sabers today, testing two long-range missiles. But in Tehran, people seem more preoccupied with their pocketbooks and their nation's military might. People are obsessed with their economic problems and they are working three shifts in a day. And we visit an American town named after a jihadist.
1: When a lot of people come in here, we always have to make that that extra effort. Like, all Arabs are not bin Laden.
0: An Algerian-American restaurant in Iowa, plus a coffee shop in Bahrain,
2: coming up on The World. The The World is brought to you with support from Medtronic, leveraging products, people, and philanthropy to help reduce the global burden of chronic, non-communicable diseases such as diabetes and heart disease. Medtronic invites listeners to learn more and join the conversation at Medtronic.com.
0: Hi, Marco Worman, This is The World. Tensions between Iran and the West continue to rise. Iran concluded 10 days of war games in the Persian Gulf today, but not before firing off two long-range missiles. Iran's pushing back against U.S. sanctions on its central bank. Those sanctions were prompted by Iran's refusal to halt its uranium enrichment program. Iran is widely being seen as flexing its military muscle right now as a potential precursor to shutting down the Strait of Hormuz. 20% of the world's oil passes through the strait. The BBC's Mohsen Asghari joins us from Tehran. Uh, Mohsen, why is Iran holding these missile tests now? Uh, the timing is quite interesting
3: because uh, this military exercise is taking place exactly at the time that the West, and particularly America, is increasing uh, the pressures over Iran's and particularly on Iran's economy. Iran is trying to send various messages to the outside world to say that, on the one hand, It is ready to defend itself in one way or another. And on the other side of the story, we can hear that Iranian top nuclear negotiators have sent letters or are going to send letters to the 5 plus 1 countries to set the stage for the fresh round of uh, nuclear talks in order to decrease tensions.
0: I also want to ask you, Mohsen, about another troubling bit of news out of Iran, at least as far as the West is concerned. Now, this announcement on Iranian state-controlled TV uh, is uh, saying that researchers have produced Iran's first nuclear fuel rods. The announcer is saying here that the rods have been inserted into the core of Tehran's research nuclear reactor. Mohsen, uh, is this a big step in Iranian nuclear technology? Potentially, it's a
3: bigger step for Iran, and also it can raise a lot of concerns on the Western side. But it is exactly in the continuation of the same policy to increase Iran's bargaining power in the run-up to the new round of nuclear negotiations. And on the other side of the story, Iran wants to say that it has progressed enough in nuclear activities so it cannot
0: halt uranium enrichment or it cannot change its policy. I mean, for the West, this news about the uh, n- nuclear fuel rods will be uh, provocative. Uh, how are Iranians reacting to all of this? I mean, it can all be kind of contained under the heading saber-rattling. I mean, they know how these national actions and the back-and-forth can escalate. That's right. Iran has adopted
3: the strategy of stick On the one side, they send letters to the West announcing that they are ready to sit on the negotiating table to talk about nuclear tensions – And on the other side, Iran is trying to show its power on testing missiles and also on nuclear activities and the progress that it has achieved through nuclear activities. Is all this making common Iranians nervous? Common Iranians, they are obsessed with their economic problems at the moment. They know that the sanctions have caused a lot of troubles for them. They have heard about uh, nuclear activities and they have understood this story from this angle of vision that the West is against Iran's progress. This is what is advertised on and off on Iran's state TV. So they are obsessed with their economic problems because inflation rate is going up, um, unemployment rate rate is uh, torturing. They are obsessed with these problems and they don't pay attention to military exercise or these uranium uh, enrichment affairs in the same
0: way that the Western people may look at it. So the economy is what's uh, dominating the lives of most Iranians right now, is what you're saying. Uh, How bad is it? It is bad
3: because um, Mr. Ahmadinejad, Iran's president, has cut all the subsidies that uh, used to be allocated for electricity, petrol, and bread. So when they cut these subsidies, it put huge pressure on the people and especially on the working class of the society because... The salary of these people has not increased, but the price of goods and costs of life has drastically increased. So the people, if you come to Tehran's streets, you'll see that people are, they are working three shifts in a day, and they are looking for ways to earn more money you know, for the families. And it is interesting that the fluctuation of foreign exchange rate in Iran has become a huge story these days. People are rushing to banks, and... Uh, foreign exchange centers in order to buy U.S. dollar, keep those U.S. dollars in order to sell it with a higher rate later. So these are the signs that shows that
0: Iran's economy is suffering from uh, bad diseases these days. The BBC's Mohsen Askari speaking with us from Tehran. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Iran's economy and potential instability there are being watched by everyone in the region. What to do about Iran is certainly a top priority for Israel, as is the moribund peace process. Israeli and Palestinian officials are to meet tomorrow in Amman, Jordan, for the first official negotiations in more than a year. From Jerusalem, the world's Matthew
1: Bell takes a look at the issues facing the Jewish state in the year ahead. There's a lot of interest in getting Israel and the Palestinians back to the negotiating table. The U.S., the United Nations, the Europeans, Russia, and the host of tomorrow's meeting, King Abdullah of Jordan, all want it to happen. But it's tough to find anyone who thinks it will, at least any time soon. In a wide-ranging discussion with reporters, veteran Palestinian official Nabil Shaf talked about possible options for the Palestinians in 2012.
4: One of them, God forbids, I hope it will never happen, and that is we go back to violent confrontation in which Palestinians and Israelis are killed by the hundreds. We are determined not to let that happen. And therefore, the other alternative is to keep knocking at the gates of the world.
1: Shaf declined to go into detail, but he said President Mahmoud Abbas might decide to return to the United Nations to ask for recognition of Palestine as an independent state. In the meantime, Shath explained that President Abbas and his Fatah party have another priority in the coming months, to work with the Islamist movement Hamas, which controls Gaza, to forge a Palestinian unity government and prepare for new elections. Shath said like Fatah did years ago, Hamas is now giving up armed struggle and adopting a political strategy for dealing with Israel.
4: In other words, Hamas is willing to accept nonviolence. Of course, they will not call it non-violence. They call it a long-term hudna, fine. Call it whatever, but it is really commitment to nonviolence.
1: The word hudna is Arabic for ceasefire, but Shath suggested that Hamas is changing and changing for the better. The Israelis are not convinced. Foreign ministry spokesman Paul Hershen says the international community still views Hamas as a terrorist organization. If President Abbas embraces Hamas, Hershon says the Palestinian Authority is deciding to walk away from peace with Israel. Hershon adds that Israel isn't alone in having doubts about the viability of a new Palestinian unity government.
0: There's a lot of talk in the Arab media about how long will this reconciliation last if it even really takes root, uh, and is it just a marriage of convenience which will result relatively soon in a in a bitter divorce between Fatah and Hamas themselves?
1: From Israel's point of view, 2012 could be a fateful year when it comes to the issue of Iran and its nuclear program. There is regular speculation in the Israeli media about if and when Israel's government might launch military strikes against Iranian nuclear facilities. But for now, Israel's message to the international community is that Iran's drive for nuclear know-how is not just a problem for Israel, but a global threat. Again, Foreign Ministry spokesman Paul Hershen. We're looking at the potential for accident. We're looking at the potential for commercialization. We're looking at the potential for
0: technology transfer to non-state actors. A whole plethora of activity, not to mention the immediate cessation of uh, foreign direct investment, not to Israel,
1: to the entire region. Speaking about regional challenges today, Israel's defense minister, Ehud Barak, said it's too early to say the secular Arab Spring has turned into an Islamic winter, but he warned that the political upheaval... Has led to more uncertainty and instability. For the world, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Demonstrators in Bahrain may feel that the Arab Spring has passed them by.
0: After almost a year, protesters haven't seen any tangible results, but at least they seem to have a rallying point. It's a coffee shop. Costa is a British chain and one of its stores can be found right on a main road in Manama. The shop's tall windows give it a front row seat on a wide traffic circle where a lot of the protests have occurred. Independent journalist Reem Khalifa is in Bahrain. She's a regular customer at the coffee shop.
5: Since the uprising happened in Bahrain in February the 14th, 2011, this coffee shop witnessed a lot of things among, you know, the protesters or the anti-right police. Events like chasing the protesters or beating them or firing tear gas or rubber bullets. So young Bahraini exchange views through the social media and they like to film these incidents or to be part of When a group of protesters attempted to occupy the Budaya Highway three weeks ago, it was an attempt to imitate the Occupy Wall Street in New York.
0: I was going to say that this whole story about the Costa Coffee Shop, it feels a bit like the fast food restaurants around Wall Street where the protesters there from Occupy Wall Street would retreat for food and, and bathroom breaks. What does the Costa Coffee Shop now represent for these Bahrainis?
5: Well, as I said to you, its location is very ironic and everybody could go there. I mean, men and women, boys and girls, and they can study, they can tweet, they can socialize. There is no restrictions in coffee shop in Bahrain. Like in Saudi, if you go, uh, you can't really sit in a place where men and women sitting together. While in Bahrain, you will find both sex sitting together mm. and uh, nobody really interfering. And you will find a lot of university students. It's like in the States. And uh, even us journalists, we sometimes sit there and all of a sudden it's all happening in front of your eyes.
0: Now, Reem, it was a New York Times online story about the Costa Coffee Shop that grabbed our attention. And we have an excerpt from a Times video. This is a customer at the Costa Coffee Shop, a woman called Fatan, expressing openly her anger and frustration with what's going on. And Fatan says, We're tired of tolerating, tolerating. They hit and we tolerate. What kind of heart can tolerate this? We're tired of keeping silent, she says, and being patient. Our heart is melting into ash. So, um, Reem Khalifa, if this coffee shop has emerged as kind of an ad hoc protest headquarters, why doesn't the government shut it down?
5: I don't know. Ask the government. <laughs> Mm. Um, I think it's very hard. I mean, even Starbucks in another part of Manama turned also to be a place for the activists and for opposition to attend when there was a couple of trials in the diplomatic area. And I have to say, people are very much fed up seeing the clashes happening without having the right to assemble peacefully. Unfortunately, we see now the violence is increasing and it, it is very much for Frustrating for people like the lady just now we heard her voice.
0: Have you actually been tear gassed yet? And have you had the misfortune of tasting coffee with tear gas in it?
5: Yeah, many times, including inside my house. In the past three weeks, we experienced having this massive of tear gas that turned many areas in Bahrain to white clouds. It's happening um, almost every day now. And uh, in some areas, is more extensive.
0: Independent journalist Reem Khalifa speaking with us from Manama. Thank you very much. Thanks. Still to come on the show, want to be a diplomat? A Danish journalist shows us how not to do it on
2: PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with support from Medtronic working across borders, disciplines and industries to deliver medical technology solutions that help improve healthcare around the world. Learn more at medtronic.com/innovation. Medtronic, innovating for life. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Republican presidential candidates are making their final
0: pitches in Iowa today before tomorrow's first in-the-nation primary. We're going to take a look at one Iowa town of 1,500 people surrounded by corn and soybean fields. It's the headquarters of the Tea Party Patriots of Northeast Iowa, and it's the only town in the U.S. named after an Arab Muslim, a 19th-century Algerian jihadist. Reporter Andrea Wenzel of WAMU meets up with two unlikely entrepreneurs there, a gay couple running a restaurant in El Cater, Iowa.
6: From the outside, Cher's Algerian-American restaurant looks like a classic American bar. In the window, you can see neon signs advertising beer. But when you walk through the door, your eyes are drawn to a display on the wall.
7: So we have a little uh, Algerian-slash-Emir area where there is a. both the flags of um, the United States and Algeria uh, hanging next to each other.
6: This is one of the owners, right. Frederic Boudouani.
7: And then the picture of the emir with a little, a little bio, just to give people a sense on of who he was and what his deeds were.
6: Amir Abdelkader's most famous deeds involved leading an armed resistance to French colonial rule. He was a nineteenth-century jihadist, but after he was forced into exile, Abdelkader became a kind of interfaith hero. In Damascus, he saved a group of Christians who were attacked by Druze. But that's not what some people here think about when they first see the emir with his beard and white shawl. Co-owner Brian Bruning explains.
1: When a lot of people come in here, the, the cultural reference they have is with like mullahs in Afghanistan or, or, you know, al-Qaeda bin Laden and those kind of things. And so we always have to make that, that extra effort is like all Arabs do not... Are not Bin Laden. I mean, actually, the Emir is is the opposite. He was a Sufi. He was a peacemaker.
7: Well, one of the sort of the uh, the ironic uh, things is that in in pronouncing Al Qaeda, uh, people generally f- say Al Qaeda, and I always like emphasize to people that R in Al Qaeda is not a silent R. Please please pronounce it. I'm making the filling for burek, which is. A ground beef, onions, parsley, and egg filling. You know, the the trinity in Algerian food is very much onions, black pepper, and cinnamon.
6: Frederic was born in Algeria, Brian's native of Iowa. The two fell in love as students in Boston. But only a few months later, September 11th happened.
7: In my way in trying to make sense of that horrific event, I, I decided to research the, the history of Islam in the United States.
6: And so they found themselves in the town named after the man Frédéric considers Algeria's George Washington.
7: Coming from Boston at the time, our first trip to Al-Qaeda, you think yourself you're going to a town in, in the Midwest uh, where the stereotype is that people are not really accepting and they're not really open-minded.
6: But to their surprise, the mayor of al Ed Olson, was personally eager to greet anyone interested in the town's Algerian connection. Frédéric's Algerian friend, Faisal Balakhtar, remembers his first encounter with Mayor Olson.
4: It was Sunday. We were driving. We were at uh, downtown. And suddenly we see the the old mayor, Mr. Olson. He came from his house, you know, wearing his uh, rope. Somebody apparently called him and told him there is some people with dark hair. They must be Algerians, <laughs> you know. So we were at the stop sign, you know, everybody with dark hair, you know. <laughs> You know, and then we have this old man, you know, saying, Salaamu Alaikum.
6: Back in the 1980s, Mayor Olson was invited by the Algerian embassy to join the Sister Cities program. Ed and his wife Ruth even took a delegation to visit Algeria. And so Ruth and Ed welcomed Frederic and Brian and helped them start Shara's restaurant. Ed passed away in 2009, but Ruth is still a regular. I think the restaurant is a fine addition to our town. It's drawing a lot of people to Al-Qaeda that would have never had any reason before to come. Ruth admits not everyone here is delighted by the idea of an Algerian-American restaurant run by an openly gay couple. We're a small enough community. We're a basic Christian community. There's a lot in a small Iowa town that don't understand. Frederic says they tried to act as cultural educators, but it can be exhausting when you're the town's only Muslim.
7: If there is a sort of a bomb in other, uh, at a nightclub in Bali, people come here and feel compelled to ask me, why did that happen, or can you explain it to us? Or I turn into, into this weird sort of spokesman for the whole faith.
6: Frederic and Brian admit there are plenty of locals who refuse to come to us. And a few town residents did raise concerns about Frederick and Brian's motives and their background but nobody would say anything on the record. Still, the restaurant has its share of local regulars. Richard wears a checked flannel shirt and looks like you'd imagine an Iowa farmer to look.
8: I mean, here, it's just
9: a whole new taste. It's just more relaxing and more enjoyable. It's just, I don't know how to explain it other than that. Culture is a very good word. You can can tell I'm a farmer.
6: (laughs) Richard's wife, Betty, says it's not just about the food. I think people who reach out and
10: want to know others and like culture and like new experiences like that are grateful that this is here. I mean, I just think it's fantastic. It's so needed because people across the country were having such a thing about anti-Muslim type thing and and the basic thing is we're all we're all the same.
7: What I'm hoping to do is that people get to know us as a human being and that the stereotypes would shed naturally and not try to rip their stereotypes away from them.
6: Brian says it makes sense for them to do this in Iowa. The state has historically been on the forefront of progressive issues from desegregation to gay rights.
1: Who says we can't come to Iowa and, and make a life for
7: ourselves?
6: Brian and Frederick both say Al-Qaeda is now home.
7: That was pretty nice. Thank you guys. Thanks for coming. Have a nice evening. Thank you.
0: For The World, I'm Andrea Wenzel, al Iowa. You can see the regulars at Shara's and get a sense of the trinity of Algerian cooking, including burek and the luscious marinade known as shermoula. That's at theworld.org. Now, for today's GeoQuiz, we're looking for a mountain in British Columbia. There's plenty of snow for skiers there this season, unlike last year when snow had to be helicoptered in for the Winter Olympics. And when there's deep snow... It's time to hit the slopes.
8: Okay, I'm just heading down a run called Matthews Traverse. It's pretty cold and windy up here. I'm heading out to Flute Bowl to look at the snowpack. I don't know if you can hear the wind blowing, but it's howling pretty good. <laughs> Where am I? Those are the clues for today's quiz. <laughs>
2: The The World is brought to you with support from Medtronic, leveraging products, people, and philanthropy to help reduce the global burden of chronic, non-communicable diseases such as diabetes and heart disease. Medtronic invites listeners to learn more and join the conversation at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. A strange, enigmatic, and decadent white diplomat arrives in the capital of the Central African Republic, the CAR. He claims to be a rich businessman who's come to spearhead a diplomatic mission. His passport says that he is Liberia's general consul to the Central African Republic, but he was not appointed by the usual channels. He bought his diplomatic passport for $150,000 from a broker he found online. And he's really in the CAR to assess vast reserves of diamonds. That's the plot to a new film, but it's not fiction. It was the real adventure of documentary filmmaker Mads Bruger.
4: You know, in the diplomat world, they say, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So we have to get to the table.
0: That's Brugger pretending to be a wealthy diplomat in his film The Ambassador. Brugger says despite his eccentric clothes and questionable credentials... He didn't stand out in the C.A.R.
4: The Central African Republic is the ultimate hideaway if you uh, want to disappear in the world. It is a place which attracts uh, dubious and nefarious characters. And in that setting, the person I am pretending to be is not that weird.
0: You know, C.A.R. is a pretty dangerous country and it's not that well known. Why are people so attracted to it?
4: If you are attracted to Africa as it was in the 1970s, it is the place to go to. It is a country of fiction because it is so non-functioning. It is so forgotten that it is um, also a place for adventure, basically.
0: But they have diamonds.
4: They have everything. They have diamonds. They have titanium. They have iron ore, uh, oil. uh, It it could be the uh, Switzerland of Africa.
0: Now, at one point, you fly to visit a diamond mine inside the CAR. It's, it's dangerous, and you can't even stay there very long, like an hour or so. And you've re- already been told by one of the diplomat credential brokers that if you don't play your con right, you're going to end up dead in a ditch somewhere in Africa. Did you have a contingency plan for what would happen if you were caught as a fake?
4: Well, when you are involved in extreme role play, as extreme as this, you have to believe that you are invulnerable, that you will... Um, you know, uh, survive the, uh, the adventure. My plan B was actually, you know, uh, my consulate was s- situated in a hotel right next to a river which borders with the Congo. So I thought, you know, if things really go bad, I will swim across the river to the Congo. But mm-hmm. that is a, a pretty desperate plan B.
0: Explain something to me. If you're a man in search of diamonds and you have a diplomatic passport, what advantages does that give you?
4: Well, first of all, you enjoy uh, protection because of your diplomatic title. You are, in uh, some regards, above the law and untouchable. You also have easy access to the circles of power. And, of course, you can uh, take out your diplomatic belongings without being checked in the customs.
0: Right, and that would include blood diamonds.
4: That could very well include uh, blood diamonds, yes. Yes.
0: You know, from Europe to Liberia and the C.A.R., you name names in in this film, passport brokers, corrupt politicians. Have there been any repercussions to the release of this film?
4: Yes. When it premiered at ITFA, the world's biggest uh, documentary festival in the Netherlands, uh, one of the diplomatic title brokers, uh, a Dutch diplomatic title broker, who actually made me the consul of Liberia to the uh, Central African Republic, he flew in from Sierra Leone in Africa, where he's working now, to a protest against the film being screened. Uh, he wanted uh, the screening to be cancelled. For me, it was an expression of ultimate stupidity because, you know, in the film, it's, it's pretty obvious what he is doing and what kind of a character he is.
0: Mads what was the point of making this film for you?
4: There are two strategies at play in the film. Uh, first of all, it's a Fairly uh, journalistic and documentaristic project, which is about, you know, if you set out to become a diplomat by, you know, ac- actively buying a diplomatic title, where will you end up? You know, what sort of people will you meet? Uh, what sort of characters will you deal with? How does it work? Like, you know, Alice following the uh, white rabbit down the pole. Uh, Another part of the film is me... Exploring my personal fantasies and fetishisms about Africa, the Africa I I long for, the Africa of my childhood. I used to read a lot of uh, comic books as as a boy, you know, uh, Tintin, Bernhard Prince, uh, The Phantom. That is another part of the film. I wanted to do uh, an African documentary which also had its fun moments.
0: I mean, I guess it does kind of explain how you appear. with your riding boots and dancing with the pygmies. I, I, you yourself, you're kind of absurd.
4: Well, that is also a survival strategy because in a way I am not undercover. I am over-cover. I am wearing a costume because... In a setting such as the Central African Republic, the only thing which is suspicious is trying to blend in. Instead, you know, by uh, dressing as flamboyant as I dress, by, you know, saying such uh, outrageous things, as I say, I'm in a way like, you know, the peacock. And I think that would make people think, you know, if he is dressing like this and behaving like this, he has to be very wealthy, he has to be very powerful. Probably also very stupid, but that is not a problem. You know, we can work with him and we will not ultimately we will not kill him. Actually, I am, you know, until they discover what has happened. I am, you know, the general consul to the Central African Republic of Liberia.
0: So you still you still are the consul for Liberia to the CAR? Has I mean, nobody from the CAR has seen this film yet? No. Are you sure?
4: I, I think so. YouTube is not big in the Central African Republic.
0: Documentary filmmaker Mats Bruger made the film The Ambassador. We have the trailer to the film online at theworld.org. Mats Bruger, thank you very much.
4: It was a pleasure.
0: In South Africa, many things divide along racial lines. That includes alcohol consumption, wine, that's what white people drink, while black South Africans favor beer. Or so the stereotype goes. But as Anders Kelto reports from Cape Town, that's starting to
9: change. <laughs> At a wine bar in Seapoint, near downtown Cape Town, people sip wine in comfortable lounge chairs. The scent of the nearby Atlantic Ocean drifts in. But there's something slightly unusual about this scene, at least by South African standards. Most of the people at this wine bar are black. Latoya Maravate came here with a group of friends.
5: I'm just into my white wines, my Chenins, my Sauvignon Blanc especially. I find it so refreshing, so crisp. I love my Sauvignon Blanc. It's nicely chilled. On a hot, sunny day.
9: In South Africa, wine has long been seen as a white person's drink. More than 95% of the country's vineyards are white-owned. Almost all the winemakers are white. And most people visiting the dozens of vineyards near Cape Town are also white. But South Africa's black middle class has been growing steadily since the end of apartheid. And more blacks can now afford to buy wine. Latoya Maravate says many of her black friends are embracing the culture.
5: But now people are appreciating it more. And um, collecting wines, going to wine farms, just enjoying the experience of just wine and the lifestyle that it comes with.
9: And she says part of what makes that possible is bars like this one, called Naked. Andrew Chigarimbo is the owner and manager. He's black and says some of his customers feel more comfortable when they meet him.
3: A lot of black people come in here and they're actually relieved to see a black person. First of all, some people are like, oh, do you own it? like, yes. And they're like, you know what, I'm going to support
9: you. Some people are very blatant. Where they're like, you know what, I'm going to support you because you're black. And some don't say it, but you know they mean it. But he says that in racially divided Cape Town, the reverse can also be true.
3: The most negative response I have had is from white people. First of all, white people come in and a lot of people say, oh, can you call your boss? And you're like, well, I chose all the wines, I'm the boss, and they cannot understand it.
9: At a vineyard 30 miles east of Cape Town, Erna Witboy walks through rows of vines. She's a 28-year-old scientist at the University of Stellenbosch. Plastic sheets are stretched across several rows of grapes.
5: So here we've got Cabernet Sauvignon, and these are actually one of the new UV sheets that we are installed. It is basically excluding all UV light.
9: Viticulture, the the science of growing grapes, is a major field of research in South Africa. but as a black woman, Vitboy is an anomaly in her field. In fact, she says she's the only black academic in viticulture in the entire country. She holds a lecturing position at the University of Stellenbosch, presents at international conferences, and publishes regularly in science journals. Despite all that, she says some colleagues still view her skeptically.
5: We would be the speaker at a workshop, for instance, and, and they will sort of just look at you in a very weird way.
9: She says awkward moments like that are common in viticulture, which still feels like a white man's world. But rather than being discouraged, she says she sees incidents like that as motivation.
5: I do have days that it actually just goes really, really bad, where I do get that feeling of, no, I don't belong here. But then I just give myself a little kick under my butt and I just tell myself, well, somebody has to be the pioneer.
9: She says her mission now is to recruit more black students, especially women, to the field. A few of her current students are interested, and she hopes many more will follow. Back in Seapoint, the wine bar, naked, is buzzing. Manager Andrew Chigorimbo says many of his black customers still buy wine for the wrong reasons. Those are the people who walk in here, they do not know what wine it is. They don't care. They just say, I want the most
3: expensive wine and I want to drink it. I know for a fact that that person does not know anything about
9: wine. They just want to show that they got the money and they can do it. But he says as time passes, more are beginning to appreciate wine, not just the status that comes with it. For The World, I'm Anders Kelto, Cape Town, South Africa.
0: There's a saying among journalists who cover the environment that, unlike most beats, environmental news doesn't break, it oozes. Well, that oozing scenario has been broken in each of the last two years when massive environmental disasters riveted the world's attention for months. 2010's Gulf of Mexico oil spill and 2011's Fukushima nuclear power plant crisis are just a few examples. No one can say, of course, whether that trend will continue in 2012, but the world's environment editor Peter Thompson is willing to make some predictions about the year ahead, and he joins us now. Peter, what do you see on the horizon for this year?
11: Well, Marco, the most significant thing I see is that oozing phenomenon starting to change, and environment stories emerging more and more as breaking news. In particular, I think that's going to happen with climate change. For years, climate change has been thought of as kind of that classic environment story in that it was unfolding only over the course of decades and even centuries as we slowly altered the chemistry of the atmosphere. But really, in just the last couple of years, climate change has suddenly started to become a breaking news story. Well, how so? Give us a couple of examples. The most obvious example of the change is extreme weather. The world saw a rash of extreme weather events in 2010. Then there were even more in 2011. Just last month, there was that terrible tropical storm that killed maybe a 1,000 people in the Philippines. The month before that, there was the flooding that inundated cities and factories in Thailand for weeks. On the other end of the spectrum, there were killer droughts in the Horn of Africa, in northern China, even here at home in Texas. A spokesman for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration here in the U.S. said recently that in many ways 2011 rewrote the record books for extreme weather events, and these kind of things, of course, affect the lives of millions of people around the world.
0: Right, but haven't scientists been telling us for years that we have to be very careful to distinguish between weather and climate? That you, You can't blame any particular weather event on climate change.
11: Well, you're right. Not long ago, most climate scientists were saying that, and many of them still are, that we could expect to see more severe weather events in a warming world, but that you couldn't link any particular extreme weather event to climate change. But more and more scientists in the field are now starting to say that they're seeing the imprint of climate change on weather. That greater amounts of heat and moisture that are building up in the atmosphere are changing the whole context in which weather happens and making extreme events more likely. Another big change is that this is happening much sooner and much more quickly than most experts predicted even just a few years ago. Mm. So back to what to expect for 2012, nobody can say for sure, of course. I mean, there's still a huge amount of short-term variability in the climate system But I think it's likely that we're going to see more extreme weather and that it will come at a higher and higher cost in lives and to the global economy.
0: Mm. What else might we see this year on the environment front?
11: Well, still on climate for a minute, there are a couple of big events coming up this year that could have a big impact in the policy area. One will take place this summer in Australia when the country's new carbon tax goes into effect. Essentially, the tax is a penalty on greenhouse gas pollution that's supposed to encourage efficiency and new cleaner technology. There was a long and incredibly bitter fight over that, and opponents in Australia argued that it would cripple the country's economy by making energy more expensive. So we'll get to see, starting this summer, whether they're right. It's also going to be especially interesting from our perspective here in the U.S., because in many ways, Australia's economy is quite similar to ours. Um, Then, of course, here in the U.S., we have the fall election, and that's going to have a big impact on our own climate policies President Obama has disappointed many climate activists, but he's also taken some pretty significant steps to cut emissions. And if he loses in November, or even if Republicans just increase their numbers in Congress, we're almost certain to see everything the Obama administration has done on the climate front chipped away at or even rolled back altogether. And and Peter, what do you see in 2012
0: in terms of countering the climate change with advances in energy technology?
11: Well, it's interesting. There are some some Two extremely interesting and contradictory trends on that. On the one hand, on the fossil fuel side, there's been this big rush to develop more and more so-called unconventional sources of petroleum. Those are the things like the tar sands or the mm-hmm. oil sands in Alberta, deep water offshore oil in places like Brazil and our own Gulf of Mexico. And and the shale gas that we've been hearing about under big parts of the U.S. and Europe and other places, right. there's kind of a big global rush for these resources right now, but they can come with a much bigger environmental impact than even conventional sources of petroleum, and there are big debates over how and even whether to go after them, and we're no doubt going to see a lot more of those in the coming year and beyond. On the other hand, renewable energy is really starting to take off. Prices are dropping for solar and wind. Countries around the world are trying to wean themselves off dependency on conventional sources. So in 2012, we should look at Germany and Japan in particular, I think, for interesting developments since both of those countries are moving toward a future with a lot less fossil fuel and nuclear power.
0: The World's Environment editor, Peter Thompson, thanks very much. Thank you, Marco. This is PRI. I'm Marco Worman, This is The World. Avalanche. The word alone is enough to send a chill down your spine. And like a tsunami or tornado, you don't want to be anywhere near one. In Canada, two skiers were killed late last week by deadly avalanches. Forecasting avalanches is crucial to avoiding such tragedies. In North America, most major ski resorts have avalanche forecasters to assess the risk of massive mountain snowslides. Jan Tyndall is on duty at Whistler Blackcomb Ski Resort in British Columbia. Jan, tell us exactly where you are right now.
8: I'm at the top of Whistler Mountain at about 6,000 feet here uh, looking out around me. How's it yeah, it's look today? a nice view. Looking south, I can see uh, Whistler Mountain Peak. As I look to the north, I can see the mountains in Garibaldi Park as well as the peak of Blackcomb Mountain across the valley. So it's a pretty darn nice view for an office.
0: Whistler Mountain is the answer to our geo-quiz today. So day in, day out, how do you go about assessing the risk of an avalanche? Is it hard to predict an avalanche?
8: It is. You know, it's a science, but it's not a real definite one. So we keep an eye on the snowpack and how it develops through the season. So uh, certain conditions make for a stronger or a weaker snowpack. You always want to be looking at the snow after you've had a big storm. That's the most likely time when you're going to get avalanches happening.
0: What are the most telling factors that set off red lights for you?
8: If you see natural avalanches happening just by themselves, if you look around and you see evidence that avalanches have gone off by themselves, you know, that's a real big one after a big storm.
0: And when was the last time you saw an avalanche?
8: We set off some avalanches just a couple of days ago after we had, you know, a foot of snow.
0: Is uh, setting off avalanches uh, one way to prevent them?
8: You can't prevent them, but you can force them to happen when you want them to. So in a skier, you have to make sure you don't have any of your guests going into avalanche terrain if there's any lingering danger. So what we do here on Whistler and on Blackcomb is to we force the avalanches to happen, and we use a lot of explosives in our avalanche control program.
0: How do you actually go about it?
8: For an avalanche to happen, you need to overstress the load that's on top of some kind of a weak layer in the snow. So we overstress that load by using explosives. So we'll throw an explosive onto the slope, and then it'll go off, and that the percussion will force the avalanche to happen. So that's the way we try to reduce the hazard in a lot of our avalanche terrain so that the guests can proceed and ski and snowboard in those areas.
0: Jan, I'm wondering if you've ever been caught in an avalanche, and what is the key to surviving one?
8: I've been caught in some small ones. The key to surviving is just to try and get rid of your skis so they don't drag you down and just use a bit of a swimming motion so you stay high up in the debris so you don't get buried. But, you know, there's not always a guaranteed way of getting out of them. You Also, we carry safety gear. We wear transceivers, things that beep, and your partner can pick up your signal under the snow if you are buried.
0: Well, if you're at the top of Whistler, can I assume that you've taken at least one run today?
8: I had an early one when it got light. How was that? It was great. <laughs> oh, it's nice. It's a good way to start the day.
0: Good way to start the year, too.
8: That's right. No, we've got a great day here, and we're hoping to get a bit more snow in the next few days.
0: Jan Tindall, an avalanche forecaster, Whistler Blackcomb Ski Resort in British Columbia, Whistler Mountain being the answer to our geo today. Happy New Year.
8: Thanks very much, Marco. Talk to you later.
0: Last June, a Stradivarius violin sold at a charity auction for nearly $16 million. This is Joshua Bell playing a Stradivarius, not the one that sold at that auction. For centuries, performers have trumpeted, excuse the pun, the sound, the feel, and the quality of the Stradivarius. But a new study published today suggests the legendary violin Ain't All That. 21 professional players were sent into a darkened room and handed six violins, three modern and three old. One violin was a vintage Stradivarius. The idea was to see which violin the players wanted to keep. And once the taste test was over, the Stradivarius garnered the least amount of votes. Claudia Fritz was the lead author of the study.
10: In the data, there is a preference for modern violins there is no clear preference for old violins.
0: Right. And it's staggering because it kind of upends the conventional wisdom about the Stradivarius being, hands down, the, the violin exactly. everybody wants. How do you explain that, though? I mean, have Stradivarius playing violin wizards like Pinka Zuckerman and Regina Carter been suckered by the Stradivarius hype?
10: I think, I mean, it was quite expected, at least. I mean, really, we are not surprised by the results. Uh, the visual bias is just enormous. Um, people know it's a Stradivarius, and then they will just convince themselves. And it's definitely it, beautiful instruments. Right. It's definitely instruments which went through centuries and who, which have like a long story, and and that's what is appealing. And I mean, I'm well, sure. I was going to ask you.
0: I mean, psychologically, what is going on here? Does the brain collect these narratives about age and legend and price yeah. of these violins, and then and then convince the ear that it is a better instrument?
10: Yeah, I mean, it may not convince the ear yeah, it's better, but it may increase the, the pleasure you have playing it. You just feel, oh, such an old instrument. It's a beautiful one. It has been played by Yodi Minouin and by famous players. And, and And then you just have pleasure to play it. And then if you have pleasure, you may actually like the sound.
0: I noticed Claudia Fritz in your in your study that there was a comparison with a recent uh, another recent study involving wine and its yeah. price. Explain what that study found and whether you think your conclusions on the Stradivarius mirror the wine study.
10: Well, the study showed us was well, that the, the pleasure uh, experienced by tasters was greater when they could see the label and that the label was an old wine. Mm. And it would probably be the same for, for many things. I mean, the same if you look at a painting and suddenly somebody tells you, oh, it's a real Picasso. You would say, oh, yes. You know, mm-hmm. I think society has some pressure on us in terms of aesthetics.
0: I know, you know, I'll shift gears here to a guitar. Um, Willie Nelson uh, plays a completely tattered Martin guitar that's got holes all over it. And he's convinced or his ear is convinced that sounds better than the same model that isn't damaged. Don't you agree that for a musician there are personal and sometimes irrational preferences for certain instruments?
10: Mm, they are irrational when when you can see the instrument. I would say <laughs> just because, but I mean that's part of it. I mean, obviously, many players say that the violin they play has to be beautiful, at least to their eyes. You know, um, and I, I completely understand that as a musician, you want to play an instrument. I mean, an instrument is like almost like a person for you. And you just want to, yeah, you want it to, to be appealing. And that's completely normal.
0: Claudia Fritz, you play the flute, correct? Yeah. Have you ever had this experience of finding one to be better than the other, even though it may not have the same kind of legend or, or age?
10: Well, I haven't done any any study on, on the flute myself. Um, but I know that some studies have been conducted to know whether golden flutes are better than silver flutes. Mm. And blindfolded, nobody could tell the difference. People, the same as for violins, you know, pl- flute players claim that they can tell the difference between a golden one and a silver one, and there, there is definitely a different type of sound. But when you blindfold people, nobody is able to tell. So it's the same.
0: All that shines is not necessarily gold.
10: <laughs> Indeed.
0: Claudia Fritz is with the Institut Jean-Laurent d'Alembert in Paris. We'll close today with more Joshua Bell on the Strad from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow.
2: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Plowshares Fund. Investing in peace and security worldwide, online at plowshares.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Freeman Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org.